Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Romans. Today we are in chapter 2. And we'll be looking at the first 11 verses. And the major theme of the passage is God's judgment. And it's this passage uh, is particularly directed toward religious or moral, moralistic kinds of people who uh, have not yet understood the gospel. And so that is uh, the direction we will go with the passage. Seems pretty clear. Not much debate on that. Hear now the word of the Lord as I begin reading in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing Seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the uh, truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, as we look to you this morning, we look to you as one who is um, compassionate and filled with mercy and grace and tenderness toward us but who is also at the same time severe with those who rebel, who resent you, who um, fight against you and run from you with contempt. So, Father, we pray that as we take time to immerse ourselves in this passage, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be the one who does the teaching, and we pray that we would have hearts that are tender and responsive and open to the truth of your word. And we know that your word is powerful. It's alive. It can come into us and create in us real life. 
And we pray that you would do so today, and we pray in Jesus' name. Now, when you read the Bible and you see the word, therefore, remember this. The best question to ask yourself is, what is the therefore, therefore? Okay? It's an old hermeneutical principle or the science of interpreting the scriptures. And so therefore points back to chapter 1. And I'm going to just give you a quick summary of chapter 1 before we go ahead because it's connected to what has been said already. And what has been said already in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, is the following. Um, people made in the image of God, who God made to live for his glory and in relationship from him, with him, are doing something that is very evil, something that's very unrighteous, something that is very wicked, something that is beyond the pale. God has revealed himself. He has revealed himself through the media of creation, through history, through other means, to where it is clearly seen, clearly known, that there is a God, and yet people stuff it, they stifle it, they suppress it through a life of wickedness. And rather than worshiping and serving God as creator, they worship and serve idols. And so the sin underneath Every particular sin is the sin of idolatry. Once we break the first commandment by having other gods before the Lord God, then verses, uh, commandments 2 through 10 are inevitable. The reason why we break 2 through 10 is because we have broken commandment 1. And the Lord is no longer our God. We become ourselves our own God. And because of that, God pours out his wrath in a present tense fashion. And he delivers us over to our appetites. And it shows up in our sexual deviancies. It shows up in our relationships with other people. And eventually shows up in our mind that becomes darkened and futile and debased and ends up rejoicing in wickedness, and then those who experience wickedness take delight in it and, and praise it over righteousness. And so Paul was primarily focusing in chapter 1 upon pagans, that is, overt idolaters, that is, people who do not practice any kind of religion, who we might call today a secular person. But in chapter 2, he begins to change his focus and his audience. Now he's addressing people who have the law of God. He is speaking to the Jew, who I will call the religious person. He is speaking to the moralistic people who, though not particularly religious, still believe in morality and principles and law and think there are certain ways that are right, certain ways that are wrong. He turns his focus from just merely pagans now to the religious person, the person who has been taught, the person who understands maybe the Ten Commandments. And he has some very harsh words to say to that particular group because here's what I found in myself and in everybody else I know very well. Just because we know and understand what the Bible teaches does not mean we live that way, does it? 
all of us have the capacity to be hypocritical and that's what Paul addresses first in this passage. He begins to talk about our hypocrisies and we'll get into that in just a second. But as he begins to lay out his thing, he doesn't really mention the Jews till verse 17, which we will look at next week. But he is primarily targeting that particular group, and he's going to show them that the wrath of God is not reserved just for the pagans. But the wrath of God may fall on you, even though you're religious, even though you're moral, you may still be subject to the ultimate outpouring at the end of time of God's judgment, his wrath poured out upon sin. And so that's sort of the context as we set it up this morning. Um, Jonathan Edwards was a great preacher and he seemed to excel at preaching on um, judgment. Um, he preached a sermon one Sunday, one of his stirring sermons on the judgment of God and the threat of eternal damnation in hell. And one of his parishioners cries out during the sermon, but Mr. Edwards, is there no mercy with God? Edwards reminded the people that they had to wait till the following Sabbath before they got to that part of the message. <laughs> the same is true here as we come to Romans 2. If we hope to get that good news now, our hopes are in vain because the apostle is not finished yet with the bad news. And the good news will never be as good as God intends it to be unless you first understand the very, very bad news. I don't enjoy preaching the bad news, but I know it's necessary. And before we get the gospel, the good news of justification by faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone, we must, as it were, uh, be uh, brought kicking and screaming, if necessary, before the holy standard of God's law so that we might be duly persuaded of our need for the gospel. And so Paul continues his somewhat relentless indictment of the sinfulness of humanity. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O oh man. Now, Paul here is a brilliant writer. He's probably the smartest person that's ever lived outside of our Lord. And Paul uses a literary form here called a diatribe. And a diatribe is where a person teaching has an imaginary opponent that he's targeting and he's having a discussion with this person and letting you overhear the discussion. And it's very much structured that way. It follows that system of rhetoric and the questions that are asked. And so don't get too caught up in that, but understand that that's why Paul says, oh man. He's not a hippie. He's just saying, oh man, because it's part of that, okay? So let's dive in. See what we can find out here. It's pretty good stuff, but it's also very hard stuff. So, he says in verse 1, Therefore, you have no excuse. When it comes to standing before God, no one anywhere has any valid excuse. I don't know if you're a person who makes excuses. Uh, I was never allowed to do that growing up in my home. Excuses were not acceptable. And that's what we were taught. But uh, he goes on to say, Oh man, every one of you who judges, 
For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. And really the first thing Paul addresses here with religious people, with people who are, quote, good people, with people who are moral people, is you got a serious problem. And your serious problem is you've allowed whatever virtues you think you may own to entitle you to condemn people and to pass judgment on people when you do and practice the very same things they do. Maybe not identical in form, but identical at the root. And the root is always what? Idolatry. I remember when I graduated from seminary, it was a long time ago, and the church I was pastoring at the time had vacation Bible school. Now, I have to tell you, and uh, Christian can probably back me up on this, the last thing in the world I wanted to do after going to classes, passing all my tests, finally graduating from seminary, was get up and drive a bus all day and pick up kids to come to vacation Bible school. But that was the job description, and I did it. And so I would drive out in North Mississippi in the hills, Yes, there are hills in North Mississippi. You don't know it, but there are. You've never been there. And so when you, and, and these were country people, okay? They were not uh, urban in any sense of the word. And I remember I picked up this little girl, and I already had three or four people on the uh, van I was driving. I picked up this sweet, she was just the cutest little girl and dressed to the nines, and she had the sweetest disposition you've ever seen. And so she bounded up that step, and she stepped into that van, and she looked at me. She said, oh, pastor, it's such a glorious day. It's such a wonderful day. I am so happy to see you. I am so glad that I'm going to vacation Bible school. He, she said, I want to learn about Jesus. I want to learn about the Bible. I want to learn about uh, everything that you've got to teach me there. And I said, well, wonderful. Come on in and get a seat. Next thing I heard her, out of her was, get your posterior out of my seat. And she didn't say posterior. She said what a donkey is. Right, be, right behind me, like I couldn't hear it. And I thought, that might be hypocritical. <laughs> what I just witnessed. And then the next thought I had was, and you do that too. You know the person who has the toughest time listening to me every Sunday morning? My lovely wife, Pam. Where are you? Right over there on the corner. That's why she sits over there. Uh, why does she have a hard time listening to me every Sunday morning? Because she lives with me. And she knows that when I stand up here and preach, I do so with passion and with all of my heart. But she also knows who I really am and how I live. She still comes to church, so what does that say? <laughs> says she's very merciful and compassionate and supportive is what it says. She understands grace is what it says. She gets the gospel. But just think about it. Every time. There's an old AA saying that goes like this, if you spot it, you got it. And the reason why we condemn others uh, is because we're doing the same thing. We're doing the same thing. I did it as late as last night and got called on it by the same woman over here. She calls me on stuff. And I said, have you been reading ahead in the Bible? Do you know what I'm preaching on next? And you're calling me on this hypocrisy which I was waxing eloquent on and then it dawned on me immediately 
Who do you think you are? You see, the Jews in particular, because they were the covenant people of God, because they were supposed to be the mediator of the covenant to the nations, that because they had the temple and the Torah, and because they had the word of God, and because they had been set apart, and because God had redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt, they were to be to the nations a light and point people to what? Yahweh, to God. And yet, you read their history, and their history, their covenantal history, over and over again is what? They were unfaithful to what? The terms of the covenant. They committed what? Idolatry. And therefore, were sent into exile, both northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And therefore, had lost even their status, lost the temple, lost everything God had given them to distinguish them. And now Paul, who cares very much for his kinsmen, uh, the Jewish people, is beginning to say, don't you get it? Don't stand on your high horse. Don't use this as a platform to applaud what I just said in chapter 1. Take a look at yourself. A lot of people don't like the doctrine of election because they think the doctrine that God chose us to belong to him is a very self-righteous kind of... Uh, snobby kind of a condescending thing that some of us believe but I, I I would posit this if you truly understand the doctrine of election it will knock your socks off it will humble you it will break you the wrong question to ask when considering God's choice of us to belong to him is why not them the right question to ask is why me why did he choose me to belong to him. And that's powerful. But Paul is here dealing with religious people who desperately need the gospel. And somehow they have come to the point. Paul shows how the pagan Gentile world rejected God, plunged itself into terrible immorality. Paul's critique of the pagan world and the lifestyle would have been roundly supported by any Jewish person listening to him. But they would have thought that Paul's condemnation of them was true simply because they were Gentiles and consequently that they were exempt from his condemnation simply because they were Jews. Now, this is exactly how any religious person would listen to Romans 1 today. They would say, yes, of course. God's wrath lies on the immoral, the pagan people, the ones who live a life of utter debauchery. But we have the word of God, and we live by that, and we are not condemned. But it is because of the subtlety of the sin and of idolatry that religious people are seen to be... Uh, can seem to be agreeing with Paul in Romans 1, 18 to 32, and yet be completely deceived. Thus, in chapter 2, Paul shows the Jews, and thus religious people for all time, that they were missing the whole point of the gospel, the good news of the person and work of Christ. The heart of the gospel is that the righteousness of God is revealed. It is a righteousness that is ours by faith from first to last. Paul shows that everyone runs from it and tries to avoid it. We run from it whenever we rely on anything or anyone else but Jesus and his perfect finished work. The pagans rely on their appetites, which become chains around their neck, bondages and addictions. 
But the religious people rely on religion and moral observances, which stores up God's wrath against them just as much. Just as much. You're not safe because you're religious. Not at all. The pagans worship through uh, self, through their appetites, but the religious worship self through morality and religion. There are many ways to rely on and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And so being a very moralistic, legalistic, religious person always comes along with a condemning spirit. You're always looking down on people. And people can smell it. You know my old saying, I don't think I've ever heard anybody else say it, and there might be reasons why, but <laughs> self-righteousness is the halitosis of the soul. It's like bad breath. And people know it when they see it, and they know it when they hear it, and they feel it. They sense it before they say it. And that's what Paul is saying. You, who do you think you are? Who in the world do you think you are standing up and condemning other people like that? You don't have a clue. You don't get the gospel yet. You're not really tracking with what the Word of God is saying. And if you are a, a moral person and you're satisfied with your uh, spiritual state, then you are denying the doctrine of righteousness through faith alone. And if you do not feel like a hopeless sinner, if you do not feel that God would have perfect right to cast you off this minute because of the condition of your life and heart, then you are denying the gospel. And when it is open to you, it won't change you or lift you up because you don't get it. And so, Paul continues. He says, what are the consequences of condemning and judging other people? The basic point of these verses takes some reflection to see, but Paul first says that God judges based upon the truth. This probably means he is most fair and just in his judgment, and here's why. First, we see that no one lives up to his or her own standards. Not one of you. I don't. You don't. No one does. And whatever point you judge others, you do the same thing. So second, this means the standards we use on others will be the standards by which we are judged. Wow. You are condemning yourself because you who pass the judgment do the same things. Your own mouth and your own standards will be that which condemns you. So religious people are as bad off as irreligious people. Francis Schaeffer used to call Romans chapter 2, 1 through 3, the invisible tape recorder. Paul means it is as if there is an invisible tape recorder around the neck of each one of us. It only records things we say to others about how they ought to live and behave. Then at the last day, God will, the judge will take the tape recorder off your neck and say, I will be completely fair. I will simply judge you on the basis of what your own words on this tape recorder say the standards for heaven are and the standards for human behavior. And not a person in history will be able to stand in the judgment against his or her own words. 
fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But Paul goes on in this section, and he goes on continuing to teach us and talk to us, and he tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the spiritual man judges all things, but himself is judged of no one. Here the word means to evaluate and understand. We are told that we should evaluate people and behavior, that we should correct people, Galatians 6. Therefore, Paul means something more drastic. It probably means evaluation, criticism with a particular attitude toward others you know. It is a writing off, a happy pronouncement of doom. You're lost, you're going to hell, and I'm glad. Or a particular attitude toward yourself. It is a belief that you are superior, you are worthier. In short, to pass judgment is to believe that others are worthy of judgment, but you yourself are not. And until that changes, you will never understand the gospel. You will never get it. If you don't see yourself, I say this often, not enough. If you don't see yourself as the worst sinner you know, you don't get it yet. You don't see it yet. You are the worst sinner you know if you get the gospel. In verses 4 and 5, we learn a lot about the patience of God. And these are wonderful verses. First, it teaches us that no one will get what we deserve. God the judge never judges on time. He never executes as quickly as he has a right to. By the way, I was just thinking this the other day. We're not qualified to judge anybody. We're just not qualified for the job. We don't know all the nuances. We don't know all the crooks and, and uh, twists and turns in life. We don't know how to evaluate a person in that regard because we don't really know them. We don't have the history. We don't have the knowledge. It's ridiculous for us to ever assume we can pass judgment on another person. But God can but he doesn't execute as quickly as he has a right to. He shows patience. These verses teach us about the patience of God. First, it teaches us that no one will get what we deserve. God the judge never judges on time. He never executes quickly as he has a right to. It teaches us that the most patient and loving thing he can do is bring us to repentance. And third, it means the more God gives us truth and good things, the greater our responsibility and the more serious our judgment will be if we don't repent. The goodness, the kindness of God is given to you to lead you to repentance. Evangelical repentance, gospel repentance, not legal repentance. And I'll talk about what that is in a minute. God wants, uh, shows us his goodness, his patience, his kindness, and how serious our judgment will be if we don't repent. The idea of storing up wrath for the day of wrath shows that the longer uh, we get God's blessing without repenting, the greater the final punishment will be. The storing up may be inspired by the image of a great dam. We have Hoover Dam out here. And I know there's a bathtub ring around the lake right now, so this may fall down. But let's say we had climate change, <laughs> and it started raining a lot. 
and it was like uh, the flood days, you know, in Noah's time. And it rained and it rained and it rained, and eventually the dam could hold back and, and the, protect us from the flood. But the higher the waters build so that when it breaks, out will, it will be enormous. When the dam breaks, it will be a flood. And that is the image God uses of his judgment on the day of the Lord, the day when Christ returns. He came the first time as a suffering servant. He came the first time not to judge, not to condemn, but to save. When he comes the second time, he will be the judge. Jesus will either be your savior or your judge, but when he comes the second time, he will judge. And if you have not repented, if you have not allowed your understanding to be affected by the truth of God, you are without excuse. And if you don't repent, then when that judgment breaks, it will fall on you. So you see, Jesus would be your Savior if you look outside yourself and trust in him because of who he is and what he's done for you. And if you give yourself to him in repentance and faith and you receive him and trust in him and not only uh, have knowledge about him, not only agree with that knowledge about him, but also trust him. Stop trusting yourself. Stop trusting anything you can do. Stop trusting anything that has to do with your own hands, your own works, and completely cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ because Christ went to the cross to receive the flood of God's wrath on your behalf. But if you don't come to Christ, it's fallen on you. That's what Paul's saying. If you don't repent, even though you're a religious person, you grew up in a Christian family, you know the shorter catechism. You understand the nature of church. When people start talking to you about the gospel, oh, yeah, I understand that, I get that. But in a moment, we're going to see whether you really do get that. And that moment is about to come now. But how does God's kindness lead us to repentance? First, it probably means that simply the fact that judgment is delayed and the world goes on is mercy. God's tender-hearted mercy. It's kind of him to simply give us more time. Second, it may mean that sometimes the irritations and disappointments and even tragedies of our lives may actually be God's kindness in disguise because they lead us to see the truth about our need and our real condition and they lead us to serious repentance. I uh, preached a funeral sermon one time. I didn't even know the people. They were I don't even know if they lived here. They just called and wanted somebody to come preach. And I said, well, if you call me to come preach for you, I'm going to preach the gospel clearly. And so you need to understand that's what I'm going to do. Oh, yeah, that's fine, Pastor. Great, come. So I took a passage out of, because I didn't know the people. I took a passage out of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 that said something like this. It's better to go to a funeral than it is to a party. How in the world can it be better to go to a funeral than to a party? Funerals aren't a party, and party's fun. How can it be better? It's better in this respect. Because every time you see someone in a casket, you see yourself there. 
Every time, that's why people get a little creeped out at funerals and death and the reality of it because it's so final. But it makes you face the fact that you will die. And after that, Hebrews says, it's appointed unto man once to die. After that, the judgment. And so maybe God is suspending the outpouring of his wrath in terms of which people will come to themselves like the prodigal and return home. Thirdly, it means the great and good things we receive in life ought to lead us to repentance. If I get a raise, for example, or if I get a promotion, or I see it as something I deserve, then it only hardens me. But if I see it as kindness, as undeserved mercy, then it will soften us more and move us toward God with a grateful spirit. And then we move next to verses 6 through 10, where we see that we're judged according to our works and we're not judged according to our pedigree. In verses 6 through 10, the general test by which God will judge people at the end is what? What is the general test that God will judge people at the end? Does this contradict what Paul has said about salvation in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17? Because listen quickly. The answer is, the test is what we have done. You hear me? The test is what we have done. Verse 6, there's no contradiction. How do we know? We need to give Paul some credit for intelligence. Only 20-something verses ago, he said that we're saved apart from the law or anything we can do. The apparent contradiction falls apart if we remember that Paul is dealing with good works as the test on the day of judgment, not good works as the basis for salvation with God. Let me repeat that. Paul here in this passage when he speaks of doing good the apparent contradiction falls apart if we remember that what Paul is dealing with is good works as the test on the day of judgment, not good works as the basis for salvation with God. Here's another way to put it. You got an apple tree, okay? The apples on an apple tree prove that the apple tree is alive, but they don't provide life. The apples are the test that the tree is alive. But it is the roots which pull in the nourishment. In the same way, faith in Christ alone provides new life. It brings, in, uh, brings it in from God. But a changed life of righteousness is what proves we have real faith. And I want to kind of talk about that a little bit more. Since I'm teaching leadership training and sanctification is up next, the, the great... Uh, understanding of the gospel that the reformers had was not only justification by faith alone through grace alone in Christ alone but also sanctification and sanctification and justification can be distinguished but they can never be separated everyone God declares because of repentance and faith and placing your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who he is what he's done for you solely not trusting anything you do. Anybody who does that is declared to be forever under the favor of God and in a right relationship with him forever. We are. Our identity is in Christ. We are united to him. We are forever under his favor. But at the very same time, 
God never justifies anyone without at the same time beginning the process of sanctification. Though they are distinguishable, they are inseparable. And what I mean by that is not only are we justified by grace, faith, in Christ alone, but we're sanctified because God regenerates us. The Holy Spirit makes us a new creature in Christ Jesus. We become alive and united to Christ like the vine and the branch that we heard this morning in John, the Gospel of John, and the sap of the vine flowing into the branch to give it life. Once we are connected to Jesus, he gives us all kinds of new appetites and desires and a, a new heart, and he places his spirit within us, and you desire with all of your being to be obedient to him and to do good works. So there's no contradiction here. Paul is talking in this passage about final judgment. He's talking to people who believe they could ultimately be saved by the works of the law. He will disabuse them of that notion soon. But just to help you understand, I thought it was important to do that. But I want you to look a little closer with me where he talks about the difference between the two. And it's rather uh, enlightening. And it's this where he says in verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'll be happy to tell you what it means. Verse 7 through 10, elaborate verse 6, namely the principle that the basis of God's righteous judgment will be what we have done. The alternatives are now presented to us in two carefully constructed parallel sentences which concern our goal, what we seek, our works, what we do, and our end, where we're going. The two final destinies of humankind are called eternal life in verse 7, which Jesus defined in terms of knowing him and knowing the Father, and wrath and anger, the awful outpouring of God's judgment, and the basis on which this separation is made will be a combination of what we seek, our ultimate goal in life, and what we do, our actions in the service of either ourselves or others, it is very similar to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in which he delineated the alternative human ambitions seeking material welfare or seeking God's kingdom and the alternative human actions or activities practicing or not practicing his teaching. Returning to Paul here, on the one hand there are those who seek glory and it's not your own glory. I know we're just a bunch of glory hogs, aren't we? Don't you want glory sometimes? No, not me. I'm holy. You're <laughs> Some of us try to be holier than God is. Come on. Get real. We do like people to notice the good things we do. We do like applause. We do like people to pat us on the back once in a while. We do like encouragement. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about glory as the manifestation of the presence of God. If you are a real, genuine gospel believer, you will have a hunger, an insatiable hunger for the presence of God in your life. You would feel empty and disturbed without it. 
You long to see his beauty, his glory, the effulgence of his being, the holiness of who he is. You hunger for that. You're, you're kind of like uh, uh, attracted to it and somewhat repulsed by it, depending on what you're doing at the time. But in reality, as a Christian, you live for his glory. You live to make him large. And you do that by making yourself small. And so, here's what he's saying at the end of the uh, judgment day. When judgment day comes, there will be people who will seek the glory who have been seeking the glory, the ultimate coming of God himself, uh, the beatific vision, as it were, God's honor, God's approval. We all long for God's approval. We all long to hear the words. We already have it in Jesus. But he says to Jesus one day, he says, uh, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And once we are united to Christ, those words are a benediction over us. But at the end of time, when we're judged by our works, we will still receive God's approval and immortality, the unfading joy of his presence. Moreover, those who seek these God-centered blessings by persistence in doing good are the people who get the gospel. Don't disconnect the two. They are reality. On the other hand, there are those who are characterized by the single derogatory epithet, self-seeking, erethea, used by Aristotle, of a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means, and so here probably means selfishness, selfish ambition, drivenness. Further, there are those who are infatuated with themselves and engrossed in self-centered goals, inevitably reject the truth and follow evil. Indeed, they suppress the truth by their wickedness. Both these expressions blame the repudiation of truth on evil and wickedness. And to sum up, those who seek God and persevere in goodness will receive eternal life. While those who are self-seeking and follow evil will experience God's wrath. Let's say at this moment, you're standing before the bar of God. You are in the dock. When he looks at you, does he see you as a person who's seeking his glory, who have a hunger for his presence, who have a desire? If you don't, if you don't see yourself as that kind of person, repent. Turn around. Turn to the Lord, not for selfish reasons, to get God off your back and to escape judgment, or not for self-righteous reasons, I'm better than you because I repented. We're all just elder brothers when you get down to it most of the time. And finally, it's, it's genuine repentance. It's turning because, Lord, my life has been going in this direction, and now I want to turn. If you stood before the bar of God, what would he say? What would you say? And that's what Paul is driving home to religious people and to moral people. Good people, we would call them. In verses 9 and 10, Paul restates the same solemn alternatives with three differences. 
First, he simplifies the two categories of people into every human being who does evil and everyone who does good. Jesus made exactly the same division between those who have done evil and those who have done good in John chapter 5, verse 29. Paul elaborates the two destinies. He describes one as trouble and distress, emphasizing anguish, and the other as glory, honor, and peace. And the peace Paul is talking about here is not the absence of strife, not the absence of war, not the absence of conflict, but shalom, the eschatological reality of the world not being the way it's supposed to be, and one day because of the return of Christ, it will be the way it's supposed to be, and we will flourish and thrive with him forever. Do you get the gospel? Have you repented for real? It shows up in your life. Should I even use the old Campus Crusade illustration? Is there enough evidence to prosecute you for being a genuine believer in your life? If somebody followed you around, could they find credible evidence that you're a believer? Because it shows up. It changes us. We are transformed. We are changed into different people. Then Paul adds to both sentences, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, affirming the priority of the Jew, alike in judgment as in salvation, thus declaring the absolute impartial impartiality of God. God does not show favoritism. So what about you? You ready for judgment day? Are you ready for your works that you have done since you have become a believer in Jesus Christ to be evaluated? If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, what are you going to do when he evaluates his works, your works? It'll be a sad day. You think about that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. It is in many ways glorious and amazing, and yet it's scary too. It's incredibly scary that some of us, maybe even some of us sitting here in this building, may be storing up wrath for ourselves because we have not yet repented and turned to you. And so, Father, as we pray today, we pray. I pray for each person in the building. I pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work in all of us, showing us whether or not our repentance is real, our faith is genuine, whether or not we are trusting in ourselves or trusting in other things other than you. And I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, enable us to turn from that and turn to Christ and rest in him forever. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give out of an abundance of joy and cheerfulness because of your grace to us. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.